Okay, so we're going to be in Matthew 5, and I've got a lot of ground to cover, so if you'll just turn with me there. We're going to start in verse 33. Um, what are we talking about? Promises today. And oaths. We don't really call them oaths anymore. Um, I mean, you do take oaths in certain contexts, but Jesus is going to address the state of our hearts and the state of our society and the state of our relationships in such a way that um, I think will give you pause. And so um, we're, we're going to address uh, something that happens here in this moment, in this moment in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a shift that takes place, and it's a big one. And you might not notice it if you weren't paying careful attention, but because it's a big shift and we're going to have to understand it, I think we need to back up and sort of look generally at the, the, the structure of the book. I forget sometimes that when we do these big overarching shape of the story type um, uh, sermons, uh, I kind of take it for granted from that point forward. But I looked back, and the last time we actually took a, a big step back and looked at the entire shape of the book of Matthew was a year ago. And a lot's changed in a year, and there's a lot of new faces. And so what I want to do in order to understand the shift that's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount is I want to take a step back and look at what Matthew is doing in the entire book, and then we're going to draw close to the Sermon on the Mount and try and figure out why he's making pretty major steps, okay? So um, first, I want to just uh, uh, reiterate that the shape of Matthew is the shape of the Old Testament. There is a structure to the book of Matthew. And if you're reading Matthew carefully, and if you've got a fully uh, uh, conceived, comprehensive understanding of the story of the Old Testament, what you're going to find is that the shape of Matthew is actually intentionally structured to follow the shape of the Old Testament, and that's for a reason. Matthew is writing to teach us that Jesus fulfills the Scriptures, right? So from the beginning, from the first verse in Matthew, we are being taught that Jesus is fulfilling the Scriptures, and here's what I mean. In the introduction, the genealogy, which is often uh, in our circles passed over, um, is often used as an opportunity to talk about the ap apologetic virtue of, uh, of the books of the Bible. Uh, genealogies are actually doing something different in the Scriptures. They're actually telling a story about the main character, and they're, and they're landing the main character's life and story in a broader narrative context. And that's what's happening with Jesus. As soon as you open the book of Matthew, read the words... The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. And all of a sudden, if you have an understanding of who Abraham is, and you remember that he is the father of the faith, and he is the first to walk confidently in the promises of God, you begin to see that Christ, the son of Abraham, is the, is the vessel by which the Lord is going to accomplish all the promises He made to Abraham, to, to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to every family on the earth, right? And, and Jesus is not just the son of Abraham, but He's the better Abraham. He's not just the, the son of the father of our faith, but He's the author and perfecter of our faith, right? So just in that first verse, we're given uh, a, a direction that is followed for the remainder 
of the book. All right. If you keep reading, um, and 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 if you want to hear this in detail, there's a there's a sermon on the in the third week of October last year that just um, walks through the entire book of Matthew um, and shows with particular texts, which we're not going to get into today because we don't have time, how, how Jesus is fulfilling the call of Israel. And here's what I mean. From, from chapter 2, Matthew begins to give signals that, that Christ is fulfilling the Exodus call of Israel. He's being drawn out of Egypt, right? And, and in the baptism of Christ, he is fulfilling the passing through the waters, right? He's, his story is structured to model and to fulfill the story of Israel. So, so he's drawn out of Egypt and he passes through the waters of baptism. And immediately then he's led into the wilderness, just like the people of Israel are led into the wilderness. Except instead of failing and a, and a generation passing away in the wilderness from lack of faith, what is he doing when, when Satan is tempting him at every step? He's quoting the word and he's staying faithful, right? And from the wilderness then, um, Jesus, he begins to teach and, he's, and he's, he's, the, he's the better Moses and simultaneously he's the better Israel. He's, he's giving the law, he's reiterating the law, he's highlighting the law and he's, and he's giving the righteous vision behind the law and he's also saying, I came to fulfill the law, right? And every step of the way, he is the he righteous living embodiment of the law and righteousness of God, right? So as Israel was called to walk righteously with God, Jesus did it, right? So Jesus was the better Israel by fulfilling the law, okay? And from the point, from, from the Sermon on the Mount until the day of his crucifixion, Jesus is doing what the people of Israel were called to do. Namely, he is, he is, he is walking step by step through the promised land and he's cleansing the promised land of wickedness, Right? What do we see in his ministry? We see him teaching good truths to the people of Israel, changing the minds and hearts of the people of Israel, and you see him casting out demons, right? So this commission that the people of Israel had been given to cleanse the promised land is actually being fulfilled in Jesus, right? And on the day of his crucifixion, he begins to quote the songs of the exile, right? And as he's being crucified, what happens? Darkness falls. And then for three days, he's, he's cast out of the land of the living, right? In death. He, he, he actually is embodying the exile that the people were sent to. And on the other side of that exile, he's restored back to the promised land, right? In resurrection. So, and, and at the very tail end of Matthew, having, having, having defeated Death and declaring victory over the grave. What do you see him doing? You see him sending out his disciples to the nations, right? And as Israel was sent to be a light to the nations, Jesus is actually doing the work that Israel was called to do. So from the first verse of Matthew to the last verse of Matthew, Jesus is being the better Israel, right? And so, so from every step of the narrative, we're beginning to see, all right, well, Jesus is is the better Abraham, and Jesus is the better Israel, and just keeps on building. In the teachings of Jesus in Sermon on the Mount, you have Jesus fulfilling the role of Moses. He's giving the people uh, a new law, right? He's giving the people um, the the law, and, and and he's equipping his people to fulfill the law, right? And so we have Jesus as the better Moses. And as Jesus is doing the work 
of cleansing the promised land as Jesus is doing, <coughs> excuse me, as Jesus is doing the work of preaching the good news and, and, and turning hearts back to him and, and casting out evil spirits and casting out disease from the promised land. You see him leading the people of Israel to a cleansed promised land and to a new kingdom. Jesus is the better Joshua, right? Just as Joshua was called to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and to cleanse that promised land and to dwell as a people who worship and honor God and walk with God, Jesus is actually fulfilling that in his death and resurrection and sending the Spirit, okay? So I can't reiterate enough that all throughout um, the book of Matthew, you see this component, right? So the death of Jesus. Jesus is the better high priest. He's offering his own blood to atone for the people. And one last deal. Jesus, as he dies and as he's raised again, right? He says, all authority has been given to me. And all of a sudden you realize that this is the son of David. And he's just said that all authority has been given to me. Well, the son of David is coming with his kingdom. All right. So, so there's no uh, I, I, I'm, I'm saying this in 15 different ways, so you can't walk out of here without uh, fully comprehending that Matthew intends for you from, from letter one to letter, I don't know how many letters are in the book, but from the first word to the last word of Matthew, you are intended to see Christ as the fulfiller. Christ is doing the work of fulfilling. Okay, so that's the big picture here. Jesus fulfills the scriptures. Now, if you were a Jew in, uh, in Jesus' day, instead of saying that, you might have said, Jesus fulfills the covenant. Okay? So we are thinking Old Testament. We'll say, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And, and even though Testament is kind of a, a verbal linguistic play to just reiterate covenant... Right? We don't really think too much in terms of covenants. But covenants to Israel were a big deal because Israel was bound to a covenant with the Lord. Okay? Israel was bound to a covenant with the Lord. And that became a major problem. So from Sinai, when, 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 when Moses presents the terms of the covenant in the law and says... Here, here's your side of the bargain. And, and, and if you fulfill your side of the bargain, you'll be a people unto God. You'll worship Him and He'll bless you. And, and, and He will see you safe and prosperous, right? You, you have this, this dynamic of like, if you fulfill your end of the bargain, it will go, go well for you. However, if you do not fulfill your end of the bargain, it's going to go real bad for you. And, and spoilers, they did not fulfill their end of the bargain, um, and so they stood, from the moment they violated the covenant, they stood as enemies of God because they had an arrangement. They had a legal arrangement that they broke. And so from the day they broke the covenant, which was, by the way, uh, the first day, from the day they violated the covenant, they became enemies of God. Okay? Now, even as the people of Israel faced the inevitable wrath of God, because they had made themselves enemies of God, God was busy sending prophets to send promises that a new covenant was coming. Right? So we see this new covenant promise 
in the prophets. And, and the prophets are speaking to a people exiled. Right? These people are cast out of the promised land. They have received the curses of the covenant. They have broken the covenant, so they've received the curses of the covenant. Now, if you spend time reading Kings, it's going to be painful for you. Because Kings was written to teach the people that line by line, every curse of the broken covenant was falling upon the people of Israel. And they were suffering. And they were in misery. And they were alone and desperate. And they were outside of the promised land. Okay, And even in that moment of dark exile, even in that deep valley, God was busy sending them promises with, with the prophecies of his prophets saying, I'm, I'm going to bring you back. I'm, there's going to be a new covenant, and that new covenant's coming. And, it, and in that new covenant, you and me, we're going to walk together intimately. And you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, right? Okay. I want to read you one of the uh, handful of promises about the new covenant. This is my favorite, which is why I chose it. It's in Jeremiah 31. Um, but I want to read to you what these people who are now exiled, what these people who are now suffering uh, because of the curses of the covenant, I want to read to you what they're hearing and how that might stir their heart to hope that there's a better way coming. All right? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Okay, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And what's the consequence of that action? And I will be their God and they will be my people. If you want to use the terms of Ezekiel, he's going to say, I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Right? You will be given a new heart. And this is the hope of the exiled people of Israel. I, I, I'm going to want to do the law. Right? I'm going to want, that's never happened before, but, but now I'm going to want to walk with God. See, the people of Israel had dark hearts, and their dark hearts were the problem. That's why they couldn't just start over. Read the Pentateuch, read, read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you're going to see what seems like 15 different times where they press the reset button, where God pressed the reset button and says, okay, 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 fine. I won't destroy you right now. Let's, let's just let's kind of start fresh. Turn over a new leaf. Um, and it never works. And it never works. And, and if you read uh, Chronicles, and if you read Kings, and if you read um, Samuel, you're going to see that like, the people will have these rallying points where they're like, no, 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 we, we want to follow God now. We're really serious about it this time. And then it just crumbles, right? It just crumbles. It's because... The problem of Israel's dark heart wasn't resolved. All the idolatry and all the lawlessness boiled down to the problem of Israel's dark hearts. Yet even in their darkest valleys, God's people were taught to hope 
in a new covenant. A covenant secured by God's gift of new law-engraved hearts, okay? The promise of the new covenant is not just a reset, but it's a reset that comes with all the equipment needed to fulfill the new covenant. And what we will see is, it's going to come with Christ having fulfilled the new covenant on our behalf. So it's, 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 it's a new covenant that has, has beacons of hope on every side. All right? So the people of Israel, even in the exile, were promised hearts that would want to walk with God. So these new covenant promises, this is my argument, this is why we're going here. These new covenant promises and these new heart promises are the cornerstone of the Sermon on the Mount. You can't understand exactly what Jesus is doing. You can't understand exactly what Jesus is, uh, is calling His people to do unless you, you approach that with the context of the new heart promise. Right? Jesus is calling His people to behave in such a way, to love in such a way, to sacrifice in such a way, to be radically pure, to be radically kind, and he's doing all of it on the cornerstone of the new heart promises, right? Because without that new heart promises, that's crazy. That's crazy. I can't even be a little pure. How am I going to be all the way pure? I can't even be a little kind. How am I going to be all the way kind, right? Like this, this new covenant, new heart promise is the, is the interpretive lens by which we understand the sermon. And, and it's the way we're going to work to resolve what, what feels like tension in this passage. All right, all that review was to prepare you to think about something that could make you pretty uncomfortable. Now, we talked about this a few times, so maybe it doesn't. But there's something that happens here that certainly made me uncomfortable. And what's funny is it certainly makes several commentators uncomfortable um, and they're like, yeah, this is happening, and we just, we just got to deal with this. Um, okay, so let me read you the text, um, actually before that point. Uh, we, let, me kind of, let me kind of couch the issue, kind of give, it, give a framework to understand what's going on. So at the very beginning, like Christ said, I came to fill the, fulfill the law, and he said, and, and my people, they need to do and teach the law, and if they don't, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So you get this like pretty intense expectation that, yes, I came to fulfill the law, but you too are called to do it and to teach it. And if you don't, it's going to go bad for you. And then this mega statement, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, who, by the way, were the most righteous and the most, uh, I mean, righteous, they were the most careful to, to follow the letter of the law in their community, even though what we'll see is that's a whitewashed tombs scenario. But you have, you have Christ say, if, you're, if your righteousness doesn't fulfill or doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not even going to be in the kingdom of heaven, right? So there's this giant expectation that you do the law. And then he pivots into, well, what does it look like to do the law? And at the very beginning, you get a lot of yes ands, right? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, it's, it's even more than that. You're called to even more than that. You're called to, to live a life of purity. You're called to live a life of, of, of freedom from lust, right? Um, where you're seeing people not, not as objects, but as, but as human beings to whom you're called uh, to love and to serve, right? So, so he's saying, yes, yes, this is good, but, 
But I'm, I'm calling you even further. Right? Same, with, uh, same with anger. You shouldn't, you shouldn't murder. Yeah, sure, we shouldn't murder. But you shouldn't feel good about merely not murdering. The problem is the anger in your heart. And you need to live a life of gentleness and peace, right? There's this call that's, that's yes. Yes, the, the law has stated a good thing. It's not, it's not good to murder. But I'm telling you even further, right? And I think most Christians are pretty comfortable with that dynamic. Um, and then we had kind of a, a, a slightly awkward moment. The last text uh, we, we read on divorce where he says, well, actually, okay? So he shifts from indeed, yes, be, even beyond that though, to well, actually, and, and, and you've been told divorce was okay, but actually it's not. Divorce is not okay. And what we talked about last time was that Jesus wasn't actually replacing at this point any aspect of the law because, because the law doesn't actually condone or explicitly permit divorce. It just acknowledges that divorce will happen because the people had dark hearts. But you see that shift has taken place where, where, where Christ points at aspects of the law and instead of saying, yes, indeed, and this too, he points at an aspect of the law and says, well, actually, we're, we're going a different direction here. Now, our passage today begins a new movement in Jesus' sermon where he's going to begin to replace laws altogether. All right? He's going to begin to replace laws altogether. And that's going to make you uncomfortable, I think. Um, and it certainly makes me uncomfortable. Um, and, and at first, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable right now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to seem like it's not a huge deal. Okay? Because what we're talking about is oaths and vows, which for our, like, it's not really familiar to us. It doesn't seem like a major aspect of our lives. Um, and so it could be easy to just dismiss this into the world of, well, I don't really understand it, but it doesn't seem to be that, that central. But what we're going to see next week is that Jesus is going to toss out a major pillar in the law of Israel's communities. And he's going to replace it with something radically different. When he says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, but I say to you, all right, what Jesus is doing at that moment is he's saying, this governing principle, which has structured your societies and which has, which has uh, uh, protected your people from acts of injustice and which has afforded an opportunity to have justice done to those who have violated um, the vulnerable, right? Like this core, core principle, he says, no, not for you guys. And that's a huge deal. And so if it doesn't bother you now, it will probably bother you next week. So, we need to understand why Jesus is replacing these laws. And we need to understand what it means for us. Okay, um, let's look at Matthew 5.33. Matthew 5.33. Read together with me. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no 
Anything more than this comes from evil. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay. Here's what we need to deal with this morning. First, the law of Moses permits and actually sometimes demands that oaths be made. Alright? The law of Moses permits and sometimes demands that oaths be made. But Jesus does not permit oaths at all. Jesus does not permit oaths at all. And even further, Jesus says that oaths, which sometimes the law demands, come from evil. Okay, that, that's an issue. And we need to draw near to that because, because if you were reading this text um, without, without uh, drawing carefully near, you might believe that Jesus just called the law of Moses evil. That's not what's happened. Okay, first I want to talk about the context here. The O's are relatively unfamiliar with, it, uh, with our culture, in our culture, but um, they, they, were the, the, uh, they were a major pillar in the social contract of, in Jesus' day um, because people were generally not trustworthy. People did not generally tell the truth. Uh, that has not changed, by the way. Um, people were generally not trustworthy. And an oath not just in ancient Israel, but all over the ancient world, an oath operated as something like a guarantee. Okay? You'd swear an oath to God. And and if you weren't in ancient Israel, you'd swear an oath to Athena, or you'd swear an oath to uh, Zeus, or you'd swear an oath to Hermes. Um, And and you'd do it knowing that, that this God would harm you or punish you if you didn't do what you said you'd do. And this was a way to convince someone that you weren't lying. Does it make sense? So, so you were calling on yourself wrath if I don't do what, uh, what I've said I've done. So, if you were doing business with a neighbor you didn't trust, he could swear before the Lord. And this is the situation that the law is addressing. The law in, in, in about four or five different places, and I, I give you the list afterwards, we don't have time to read them. Um, the law in, in, in a number of places uh, commands the people to do the oaths that they've sworn to the Lord. Right? And what that means is, if, if you had to swear an oath because your neighbor didn't trust you, then you need to do that thing or else God's wrath is going to land on you. Does it make sense? Um, this neighbor would basically be calling down the wrath of God if he didn't live up to his agreement. Now, as the law was distributed, um, see, I told you guys, you know, not to cheer because, and then I just start yelling. <laughs> Bye, Isaiah. Um, so as the law is, is distributed and, and passed down from generation to generation, this scenario became a house within which people could be as tricky and as manipulative as they wanted to be. So because the this, this sort of oath that called down the wrath of God directly was, was pretty heavy and people were a little nervous about sort of stepping into that territory, tricky people began to swear by things that were sort of associated with God. 
like the heavens or the temple gold. He's going to deal with that later in Matthew. Or Jerusalem, right? And it was a way to sort of convince your neighbor that you were serious and you had no intentions of deceiving them without actually having consequences if you didn't fulfill your end of the bargain, right? So, so this oaths scenario just became uh, a tricky tool for manipulation and deceit. These types of oaths were mid-range kind of things, not so heavy. They gave the appearance of commitment without the consequences, all right? That's what Jesus is referring to when he says, I'm telling you, don't just not swear an oath to the Lord, but, but don't swear an oath to heaven or, or, or the temple or Jerusalem, um, because, because these are all gods, right? Um, okay, we'll talk about that later. To further complicate the scenario, some people, and these I think were the trickiest, um, ickiest type of manipulative individuals, some people would swear by their own head, okay? And it, we have a very similar practice here in our culture, cross my heart and hope to die, right? It's usually kids do it. And the reason kids do it, by the way, is because nobody takes it seriously. Um, but, but this was a way to say, no, no, I'm so serious about this that, that I swear on my head, and if I'm wrong, I hope my head comes clean off. <laughs> right? It was a godless and consequentless way of saying, I promise. This time I mean it. Okay? Now, That's how a law that was given to keep people honest was being leveraged to facilitate layer upon layer of dishonesty. This is the same thing, by the way, that happened with the divorce uh, certificate text that we talked about. This aspect of the law that acknowledged that people have divorces because people are wicked, right? Um, It was then used to facilitate much worse wickedness. And that's what's happening here. The economy of oaths had become the framework for, for a society of manipulation and deception. The ways you leverage certain big, heavy oaths and certain mid-range oaths and certain light oaths was just many, many different ways to commit to a thing without really having much intention of doing it. Okay. Jesus looks at this situation and says, no, no more oaths, no more oaths. And he gives two reasons. One, everything is God's, right? Like you're not getting out of the heaviness of swearing an oath before the Lord by swearing an oath on Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the city of the great king, right? At the the Son of God who will reign forever and ever. That's His, that's his city. That's His kingdom. It, swearing an oath on Jerusalem is just like swearing an oath on God. Don't swear an oath to the heavens. That's His throne. Right? Jesus is stepping back and saying, look, it doesn't matter what you're choosing to swear an oath on. Everything belongs to God. And you will be held accountable for your commitment whether or not you swear to the Lord or swear to the heavens or swear to Jerusalem. And then I think this is funny. He says, nothing really belongs to you. You don't have any power. He says, like, you're going to swear an oath on your own head like the silliest 
the least heavy, the, the, the most um, ridiculous oath you can take. He says, you can't even make your hair uh, black or white if you wanted to. Now, if I really wanted hair, and guys, sometimes I do. If I really wanted hair, and I just... It's just not going to happen. I don't have any power over my hair. Uh, regardless of all the ads that I receive. It says nothing's yours. You don't have control over this situation. Right? So those are the two reasons that Jesus gives. And I think there's two implications playing behind these reasons. One, I mentioned already, God will hold you accountable for your commitments. You can't make an oath that manipulates that, that dynamic. Right? God's going to hold you accountable for the words you say and for the commitments you make. And it doesn't matter if you swear an oath or not. It's not like God's sitting there taking a nap and as soon as, he says, as, soon as somebody says, oh, I swear to God, he's like, oh, what? Hey, let me write that down. Make sure to, to go back and see that this is done or else you know, I'll get my, get my thunderbolts out. That's not how it works. We serve the God who sees and hears And we serve the God of justice. Also, I think the second thing that's going on in this text is that issuing a guarantee of a future outcome, oh man, is laughable arrogance. We don't have what it takes to guarantee a future outcome. You can have control over what you think is every single variable What's it like? What are financial crises about? Read the news. What are financial crises about? A whole bunch of people are absolutely certain that they understand every dynamic that is at play and they're confidently moving forward and then one little piece falls and the whole house of cards tumbles. We are weak and frail and powerless creatures If we're pretending to one another that that's not true, we're just waiting to be humiliated. Does that make sense? Okay. And then he issues a new law. I'm pulling these words from James because James also highlights this dynamic. Jesus says, yes and no. Yes and no. Whereas James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then he says, anything else comes from evil. Anything else comes from evil. Now, that last statement should give you pause because the law in a handful of places permits oaths and in a few places actually demands oaths to be made. If there is an accusation that a spouse has been adulterous, the law demanded that that spouse... Swear an oath before God in in front of the priest. Alright? Okay. Now hang on. Jesus said anything beyond yes or no comes from evil. Did Jesus just call the law of Moses evil? Did Jesus just call the law of Moses evil? Well, the answer is no. Let me explain why. What does he mean when he says anything more than this comes from evil? Here's what I think he means. Oaths are necessary 
in an environment of distrust, right? When you're giving regulations to a people as to how they swear, how they make promises, how they give oaths, the assumption is that we really can't trust anybody in this room, right? Like, what, why are oaths necessary if when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it and you've never failed anybody? Well, they're not. They're not necessary. Promises are issued to those who wouldn't already believe you meant what you said. In other words, oaths are only necessary because people are liars. And that scenario where people are liars and you can't really trust them, so we need to create some sort of mechanism by which we can trust what people say because this time there's a potential danger in them not holding up their end of the bargain. That's an evil situation. And just like the scenario of divorce, where, where God says, no, that wasn't the, or Christ says, that, that wasn't the only intention, or that wasn't the original intention, but Moses gave you this permission because you were wicked. That's the scenario he's referring to here. The people of Israel were so distrustful of one another because the people of Israel were so deceptive and so manipulative that I needed to facilitate arrangements so that they can actually do the business of living together, that is a wicked situation that the law is addressing. The law's permission to issue oaths is an artifact of a dark and manipulative people. Or to state it in a positive way, good, honest people wouldn't need oaths. Good, Honest people don't need to swear to anybody because you trust them, because they're good, and because they're honest. Now, what does it mean then that Jesus tosses this law aside for his people? If that law was issued to regulate a community of distrust, and a community of manipulation, and a community of deception, and then Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, no more oaths for you. You don't need oaths any longer. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. The community of Christ's people is a community of new hearts. Right? If Christ fulfills the Scriptures. And if Christ inaugurates a new covenant, then Christ's new covenant people have been given laws engraved on their hearts. They've been given new hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. Right? And they want to walk with God. And they want to do, to do the law. And they want to be beacons of righteousness. Right? And when, when Jesus is equipping that new heart community, he strips, them of, he strips them of the tools they don't need anymore. You don't need oaths anymore because you, you people, you're honest and you're good. All right. 
Let me clarify. You people with new hearts can be honest and good. It is within your power by the might of the Spirit who I I am sending to you to be good and honest and to be people of integrity so nobody ever doubts your yes and your no. Okay. The new covenant people of God with their new law-engraved hearts will live lives and speak words with such integrity that oaths will be unnecessary. Yet again, Christ is calling His disciples to an impossible degree of righteousness and He is then going to empower them by His blood spilt on their behalf and by His Spirit sending and by the Advocate dwelling. They will be empowered to be righteous. So that nobody needs oaths anymore among you. So I think that there's an implied warning here for us. And the implied warning is, if you find yourselves needing promises, you're still walking in darkness. You've harbored, if you're in Christ, you've harbored a small subsection of your heart to say, well, it's okay, it happens. Right? This is just normal humanity, no big deal. And Christ says, for them, no big deal for them. They've got hearts of stone. Look at you with your new heart. You have been empowered to be honest and to commit and be trusted because of your integrity, right? Okay. So the new covenant call in this passage is that we who are in Christ need to live lives of radical integrity. We need to live lives of radical integrity. What does that look like? We have been given new law-engraved hearts capable of honesty and transparency and integrity and free of deception and manipulation. Which means that if you are harboring deception and manipulation among your relationships, in your hearts, among the way you relate to your employer, among the way you relate to your friends, and you're doing it willingly. It is no longer... You aren't in slavery anymore if you're in Jesus. You're not a slave. You are free. Which means you have it within your power by the might of the Spirit. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness. And one aspect of that life and godliness is a life of integrity. And that's what you're called to. It's what Jesus' words mean here. The world shouldn't need promises to trust you. The world shouldn't need promises to trust you. If they do, it's a problem. Now, I think we have two minutes for a few caveats. Like many of Jesus' words, this is a picture of the broad general call of the people of the new kingdom, the people with new covenant hearts. This is not a full stop, hard line boundary to make oaths. Right? There have been Christian communities that refused to swear an oath in the court of law. There have been Christian communities that, that, that refused to swear any oaths at all because they take this 
this, this uh, invitation to walk in integrity uh, very literally. I don't think that's what's going on. And the reason I don't think that's what's going on is because we have a few instances in the New Testament where the apostles, in order to uh, convince a community that is being deceived by the enemy, they're swearing oaths to God. As God is my witness. Right? So, so even within the New Testament, we have a few instances. In fact, Jesus, we're going to see one where Jesus is actually swearing an oath by way of the words of the high priest. We, we have a few instances where, where Christians are permitted even it seems appropriate where Christians are to swear oaths of some sort. That is not the situation this is addressing. This is addressing a situation where you are having to convince someone to believe you because you are so riddled with deception and manipulation. You don't have to be anymore if you're in Christ. If you need promises for people to trust you, it's a problem. So, finally, let me give you a bit of advice about promises. A bit of advice about promises. One, you'll be held accountable for every word. Every careless word. You'll be held accountable for every word. So every commitment you make is before the Lord who sees and hears, and it's sort of like an oath. Right? In other words, remember the God who remembers your words. It will keep you from being so careless. It will keep you from committing to things so lightly. Two, promising a future outcome is dangerous territory because you are not God. Don't promise someone that something in the future is going to happen without any caveat like Lord willing. It is wickedly arrogant. And by the way, if you're a business owner, this is a brilliant way to shine the light of, your, of the gospel onto your, your clients and onto your employees. Because business owners raise money by saying, I project we will make X dollars by X date. is a great opportunity to say, it seems like things are headed that direction. Lord willing, we'll continue to grow. Does that make sense? Okay. You're not God. You don't have control over all the variables. And unless it's been promised by God Himself in the Scriptures, you can't claim it with all of your weighty authority. Make sense? Okay. Third. If you're following Jesus, right now you have a new heart. Right now you have a new heart. You are right now capable of living a life of superlative integrity. I think sometimes we recognize that sin is toxic and that sin creates habits and sin creates um, something like addiction. And so we, we, we want to give people room to grow over time. Now, that's not always bad. However, if your, uh, if your uh, theology of sanctification permits you tomorrow to sin because, after all, you're just walking step by step closer to the image of Christ. If, if your theology permits you to sin tomorrow, then you've got a bad theology, right? If, if you keep in your pocket that I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and every day I'm a little bit more made into the image of God, therefore, when I lie to my boss about 
where, where I spent this expense account dollars, uh, it's going to be okay because there's mercy every morning. That, that, is not, that is a bad theology of sanctification. And you don't, by the way, understand what Jesus has done for you. And that's a very scary place to be. Okay? You, right now, have been given everything you need right now for life and godliness. Uh, Isaiah, by the way, who's uh, singing happy words to us right now from the cry room, um, came to us on, uh, boy, feels like a fortnight ago, but it was like two days ago, um, three days ago. Uh, anyways, first night, it was a transition for him. It was, it was hard. Um, he woke up a bunch. And, uh, <laughs> sweet boy. Um, and at 5 a.m., like, I, I hadn't slept much at all. And I've seen you guys. I, you guys who have babies, I've seen you walk in rooms with, like, the, the heavy lids and the purpleness. And I was feeling a little bit of that, but it's just what day one, so not remotely like what some of you gone through. But anyways, I was sitting on my couch, and uh, Isaiah should have been sleeping, right? But he wasn't. He was, he was just laying there on the mat, just playing with the things, having a grand time. Um, and I was tempted to think, wow, man, I really needed sleep. And I, I just remembered something that Tara tells me all the time. If you believe that God gives you what you need for life and godliness, and you didn't receive it, then you didn't need it for life and godliness. Real simple calculus of Christian theology. But um, you have right now, despite your night of short rest, despite your fear, despite your anxieties, despite your desires, you have been right now given everything you need for godliness. And that means that you can right now decide that you are going to be, by the power of the Spirit, an honest person. When Tara came to Christ, do you know what caused everybody around her to ask questions about Jesus? She had to go to all sorts of people and say, I lied to you. I lied to you about this. I've been lying to you for years. Right? Because she was given a new heart and on that first day she had everything she needed. Okay. Alright. For if you are notably inconsistent, if you're making a whole lot of commitments you're not living up to, if you're promising and not fulfilling you're painting the wrong picture of the new covenant community. We shine the light of Jesus in part by our um, righteous works, by our, by our integrity. And so repent. I've had to do it this week. <laughs> repent. It's time to change. It's time to take seriously that nobody around you can trust you. That's a big deal. And it and it doesn't tell people the right things about Jesus. All right. Fifth, this is, this is going to hurt, um, maybe. Uh, commitments to banks matter, right? Like banks are businesses owned by people. Uh, I was having a conversation with a friend um, in finance, and he listed pastors as one of the three professions most likely to have the worst credit ratings. Man, 
That's, that's not good. If we're making commitments to pay back this company and we are not fulfilling those commitments, that is as serious as lying to your neighbor. Okay? Now, let me just tell you, if you're in that situation, there's so much grace and, and also there are people in this room who are just geared to help you walk through that situation, right? Dale used to have a class like every year or so teaching people how to do the books, how to pay their debts, and, uh, and, and that's just one of many, many resources in this room. Okay. Sixth, yes, your commitments to your supervisors matter. Your work is one of the primary avenues to express your faith. You should be the most trustworthy person in your office. You should be the most trustworthy person in your building. You should be the most trustworthy person in your company, right? Get that picture of Joseph where even though he was just a slave boy, he rose through the ranks of the Egyptian government because he was so careful to do what he, what he had been, to steward what he had been given to steward, right? He was trustworthy, Let's shine the light of the gospel on our workplaces. And then finally, if you, like me, see in yourself inconsistency, remember Jesus. He has, past tense, fulfilled, past tense, the law on your behalf. You have been blood-bought by the Son of God and you do not stand condemned. So reflect on His work Rally your heart to hope in His promises and then ready yourself for His kingdom where you're going to be very uncomfortable if you're used to lying to people a lot. Make sense? Or if you're used to making promises you can't keep. Okay. I think we're going to sing. Um, And uh, let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord. Rally our hearts to hope in the kingdom. Rally our hearts to live lives of integrity. And and allow us to embody the new covenant, law-engraved hearts of the citizens of your people. In Christ's name, amen.